Hello and welcome to Midriff, the podcast about gender, music, and music year. I am your host, Hillary Jones. So I will say that I am super fascinated to see how the pandemic hands out for bands as, you know, things are sort of starting to open up. I've been thinking a lot about this and it seems like there have been sort of like three major musical directions that people have taken in the pandemic. So either like your band wrote like a wild double LP worth of material and it's already like recorded and you're ready to like go on tour and you've been super, super productive or your band hasn't practiced in a year and a half and maybe you don't remember any of your songs or maybe your band broke up or something <laughs> or you spent all of your like time getting really into like solo jams and you've decided to go in a totally different musical direction. I feel like that's sort of where it's gone. Alternately, relatedly, I would say some people just like have been so busy that they haven't been able to do anything music related at all. So there's that. Uh, and it's, I feel like there's so many different identity pieces that play into all of those. It's just, I don't know, it's fascinating. So I've been thinking about it a lot as well as it's, uh, I think our band is actually going to have our first practice or at least our first hangout since like June. Yeah, it's, it's been a long time. And, you know, we had a few backyard hangs early in the pandemic without playing music, like so that we could, you know, just catch up or whatever. But then as it, you know, people just got stuck in their sort of like pandemic rut or whatever, it just, you know, routine, um, it just kind of stopped happening. So, and, you know, as I mentioned here before in my interview with Meredith, who is our drummer, we both have young kids who are at different schools. So like in order to maintain our pods, we kept ourselves separated pretty much as well up until pretty recently. But, the, you know, the three of us, our band, uh, Meredith, Gus, and I will be getting back together where we'll be catching up, planning maybe some music ideas, I guess, or, you know, hopefully even playing. I don't know. We're going to see what happens. I'm not going to push it. <laughs> but either way, I'm excited and I'm like resetting up my pedal board in anticipation. I'm very, very psyched, you know, even though we might not actually, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's going to take us a minute to write new songs uh, since our singer has left. We'll be writing new songs and, you know, we might not play out for months. Who knows? I don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen. It's a wild time. So, you know, if you personally are in a place where you can practice or play out or even if you aren't, but you're looking forward to it, I'm wishing you luck. It's going to be great eventually. <laughs> All right. With that, let's get into it. First, I want to thank some of Midriff's fabulous sponsors. So uh, first of all, we have Earthquaker Devices. So if you haven't already seen these already, you can check out a few of the new Astral Destiny pedal demos on Earthquaker social media, including from Reba from Code Orange and Sarah Lipstate uh, with literally three Ebos. It's a, it's a wild situation. And also uh, Anne Silkowski recently posted one over on her page as well. Rebit did some really cool stuff that might seem sort of out of character for music because she plays like pretty heavy music, but it sounds really, really cool, the things that she chooses to do with it. And both Sarah and Anne sort of like leaned into their already sort of like ambient vibes. And they were sort of the two people that I thought of when I heard this pedal. I was like, oh, they're going to, this is, this is for them. It's going to be great. <laughs> they sort of like made the pedal. I don't know. It just, it sort of sung in different ways based on their own uh, styles, if that makes sense. Anyway, it's a cool pedal. 
you can check out Earthquaker Devices, the Astral Destiny, and all of the rad pedals handmade in Akron, Ohio at EarthquakerDevices.com. And also, as a quick note, our guest today mentions them, but I promise it was not part of the sponsorship. Totally independent. There you go. Uh, I want to thank once again Studio 121. Skylar can help you with all of your audio needs at a super reasonable price and with a quick turnaround. Editing, production, recording, jingles, podcast music, whatever you need. She can help you do it. Find Studio 121 on Instagram at Official Studio 121. These sponsors support the podcast, and I hope you support them too. You can find links in the show notes to the sponsors, to the Midriff Instagram, Facebook pages, website, all of that as well. So today's guest is Aisha Lowe. And if you are familiar with the pedal world at all, you likely already know her work or at least her name. Low Sounds is a queer woman of color owned company uh, with her and her partner, Fiona. Aisha is the builder and designer and she builds pedals by hand with really just like a super high attention to detail. She was describing some of it to me outside of the interview and it was very intense, like a lot of really imp impressively attentive sourcing and like matching of components and things like that. It's, it's, it's amazing. You know, whether it's for like a small run for a custom pedal that's like specifically bespoke to the customer, you know, like all of it, super high detail. And she's also known for using salvaged materials such as like Atari controllers or old wireless intercoms to house her pedals. It's, it's very, very cool. Uh, and one thing I learned in my research is that she's also a rad musician and she has like really cool solo electronic work, which you should definitely check out, and also has played in a bunch of punk bands and goth and industrial bands. Just very cool. And I'm sure that you are going to be psyched to learn more about her. And as a quick note, my regular interview platform wasn't quite working, so we ended up using Zoom, and our audio ended up being on one track. So you'll notice the interview will sound a little different than normal, mostly that my audio is a little quiet. But you don't need to hear me. You need to hear Aisha. So it's totally fine. <laughs> anyway, uh, I think you're really going to enjoy it, and uh, let's get to it. And here's my interview with Aisha. Glad to be here. Yeah, so psyched. This is fabulous. I feel like it's been a while coming. I've been wanting to have you on for a minute. So, so jazzed that you're here. It's weird too. I'm dreadfully shy about this stuff, but um, I also love what I, what I do and I love music and I especially love being a part of uh, podcasts where there are female hosts or, you know, just, you know, it's a more comfortable space in a lot of ways. Um, the guys are awesome too, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, this is exciting because I get to, you know, chat with a peer. Essentially. Yeah. Thanks. So let's, let's start chatting. Let's do it. Uh, so for folks who maybe aren't familiar with you, 
Can you introduce yourself, your name, your pronouns, and a little bit about like yourself and your background with music? Sure. Uh, my name's Aisha Lowe. I'm female, female pronouns. I am a lifelong musician. Started playing in fourth grade. I think you also started on clarinet, right? I did. It's yeah. Cool. Yeah. As soon as I realized it was completely messing up my teeth. Because, <laughs> you know, when you're going through puberty and like, I was like, oh God, I already look weird to the, all these white kids, you know, that you grew up with, you know, so went from clarinet to saxophone, played in all the school band stuff. My, my very best lifelong friends are still my marching band geek friends. Nice. <laughs> but uh, around eighth grade, we all got electric guitars. Uh, we all got super into, you know, uh, at the time metal was huge. So we yeah. were like really into Metallica. I didn't learn till later, like how gross that scene could be <laughs> until I started gigging. thing. It is because I love that music, you know, yeah. and why does it speak to me? I, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's uh, honestly, I've always been, this is like, it's, it's hard to admit, but much more connected to music than words. And that's mm -hmm. why when words really do hit me, when lyrics hit me, I'm like, wow, that's brilliant because you got through to me. It's all I care about is the groove and, you know, that sort of thing. But anyway, you know, we started, we all kind of had the same guitar teacher and had our little bands together and stuff and uh, uh, played guitar for pretty seriously for about four years, I'd say, taking weekly lessons, still doing all the like marching band stuff at school. And um, then I met uh, like my musical soulmate, my friend Mike, who also became my first love. <laughs> incidentally Aww. and uh we would just jam together and he said one day he's like oh uh i met this drummer guy and we kind of like want to play but we don't have anybody to play bass he has a a bass rig there and a bass would you mind just like helping us jam and i said yeah sure and so i would say within like an hour I knew I was going to sell all my guitar stuff <laughs> and get like the biggest bass amp I could because that one wasn't loud enough. Yep. And Please I didn't even have a, a bass. Was it a PV? Did you get a PV? Oh, I, to this day, I play an, a 1981 PV Mark IV yes, bass head. I've had SVTs. <laughs> I had a Blue Line SVT. Mm -hmm. I've had Portaflex. I've had them all. But, you know, the PV has just been like a workhorse and it's weird but it takes pedals really evenly in my experience. Yeah. Like I don't get those volume blasts yeah. that I do from tube. And I used to play with tons of pedals. It's funny. I'm an old lady now. And you know, when I play with my two lifelong bandmates, these two other women, one of whom is coming here in an hour, oh. um, our first post COVID hang, we just play straight up like X style punk rock cool. <laughs> these days. And so I don't use pedals on my bass. And it's weird because I make pedals now. <laughs> but yeah. I, you know, now and then I'll kick on a, a graphic fuzz just for like, ah, you know, the right. crazy stuff just at for, the end. Emphasis. Yeah. I need to get on the floor still once in a while. So you, you just have to do what you got to do. But, you know, I do find that that PVM, I like had one and then I sold it because everyone's like, you need to get an SVT. Right. And I'll tell you what, every single gig afterwards, it needed service. It weighs like 8,000 pounds. Yeah. It sounds like heaven. Every single sound person, it was like the, what, the few times that I wouldn't get like misogynized at soundcheck is they would 
you know, come by, come up after, look at my SVT that looked like a pit bull chewed on it. Yep. And and just be like, this amp sounds great. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it's a huge pain in the butt, though. Right. It weighs you know? so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And what did what cab situation did you have before and like do you have now? When I, I played a lot of like goth industrial synth pop, I was doing uh, live nice. electronic music since the late 90s mm-hmm. when people were just looking at us with our chaos pad on stage like, what are you doing? What is <laughs> this? is right. not rock and roll. You know, we had to basically move to L.A. for people to get it mm-hmm. at that time. And now it's like such the norm that it's, right. it's kind of funny in that way. Everybody's but, got a chaos pad. Right. And I ditched it years ago. So I was like, this is pedestrian now. <laughs> you know? like, this is not, you know, but in, in those days I would run Ableton live on my laptop, have about two pedal boards worth of stuff. And I used the PV head with a Mesa Boogie 15 inch cabinet, which is like indestructible. Right. You could, I've actually blown speakers out of the baffle with a deluxe memory man, just turning the feedback all the way up for yeah. fun. Like if they make me as a backline like a heart key or something horrible that I don't like, <laughs> but the mess of boogie, I could just like really just, it'll come out like five inches and won't never blow, you know? So with right. pedals, I love that cabinet, but so, to play uh, in the punk band, I just basically had that PV. And then I was also running uh, cause it's not the loudest amp. Uh-huh. If you're playing with my guitar player, who's like super what? loud. Is that like 400? It's a hundred watts. It's oh, really? State. Yeah. And okay. so what I did was I biamped it with this awesome series 400 PV uh, from the seventies. That has awesome. a built-in distortion, mm-hmm. you know? So I did that and I had an Ampeg four by 10 with the mess of 15. Wow. <laughs> so it ended up being just as heavy, <laughs> you know, but my guitar player plays really loud and it, and it, we super get off on it. Yeah. The drummer. So it's not like I'm going to tell her to turn down. You know, we're just yeah. going to, we're just going to dig in. I think that's a real conversation with bands, like having a, like being like, but how loud are we going to be? Yeah. I feel like that can start fights kind of in some ways. Ugh. It's like. I started off in a nine person band, so you don't wow. have to tell me about that. Yeah. Not it, like a ska band? <laughs> no, it's kind of interesting. It was like me and my two, these two brothers who I was in marching band with for years, my two brothers, mm. both my brothers are just like brilliant musicians Mm -hmm. that i'm just so gushy about and mike my musical soulmate we were in this Mm -hmm. project called ghoul in new york and it was like avant-garde world music heavy metal like i don't know if you're familiar with mr bungle yes we all like worshipped mr bungle and we're trying to do like for me now (laughs) yeah we're trying (laughs) to do like our version of it but also inject our you know, my brother plays sitar. So we mm-hmm. had the sitar on stage. We had an Udu player. We had like all this stuff. And it was crazy because like the rock clubs were like, first of all, half of you can't even be on the stage. This is, we don't know what to do with you. So we started getting booked at like the knitting factory. Yeah. With these kind of jazz places. And that was incredible. That was like our scene. You right. Know? In, in those days, it was like the early... 2000s and the Brooklyn scene was like super amazing. Knitting Factory like moved a few times. Yeah. We sort of became like the house band there for a minute. It was really fun. But I tell you, we had to rehearse four nights a week. And the guitar players, like my my brother who played guitar and sitar, and then Mike played guitar, was like, I, I watched them. 
they don't even realize they're doing it. They're like, turn uh. around and turn. I see you turning your amp up. And then, of course, I'm going to have to turn my amp up and the other bass player is also going to have to turn right. up. And, you know, so it just like we realized pretty quickly that that really that kind of thing really, I find, only works for like a punk trio. You can do that when you're a trio because you have to fill up that space. Yeah. I've never been that person who's like, I need a wall of amps, you know. Mm-hmm. I just want to want it to sound balanced, right. you know. And in the trio, that was like a lot more challenging. I found his, uh, you know, being in, going from a nine-person band to a trio. In the nine-person band, you're you're doing like da na 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 na, and you're resting, right? Sixteen beats because all the others are filling in sections. <laughs> I could switch uh-huh. from saxophone to bass to whatever. Yeah. In the meantime, but in the trio, it was just like you're on, you're on, you're on, and so we realized pretty quickly, like louder is just kind of better for this kind of music and for filling up the space but i hated carrying all that oh my amps. god yeah the nice thing about being in a band with eight guys they were like my brothers and just we were best friends and stuff and two of them were like football players really strong guys so like i never moved amps <laughs> to oh, be honest with you yes you know like i was that person who kind of had to go like talk to the people because a lot of them were shy so hey, we all performed our our if roles everybody's in got that their way, role and like it's. But it's it's funny because I started playing all in girl bands um, once I got out to California. Mm-hmm. Pretty much exclusively played with women, and I was always the biggest one. I'm like six feet tall and you know ropey, so I end up being like just out of sheer you know that I can do it, moving most of the amps, definitely driving every tour mm-hmm. <laughs> being the dr- I've driven tens of thousands of miles you know <laughs> I love it though yeah I like driving too I'm with you 100 percent yeah I I much prefer driving than navigating oh yeah yeah or letting your like could be drunk bandmate mm, yeah <laughs> drive you to the next town I'm fine guys nah that's no. cool <laughs> I got it it's cool <laughs> yeah I yeah. learned to stop drinking after soundcheck and just in the days when I did drink because it's just so important that we get from each town safely and totally. that no one drives under the influence. Found in the, the dynamic, the gender dynamic between bands, like, do you think that that's because it was mostly people you know or has it been different when it's been people you didn't know as well? Or I have no like- doubt in my mind that I got spoiled by my guys because they're like the most sentient beings i know and they're all straight they're all married with kids Mm -hmm. you know whatever that means they're just really good people and i think as my two brothers you know we grew up mostly single moms most of the time till we were in our teens so you know they learned to respect women they had very stubborn strong-willed sister and mother so you know you weren't gonna you were gonna have to be a good man you're going to have to be a good person. And so I got really spoiled because definitely once I got out to LA, <clears throat> before we found Watts, who's like the most incredible female, all time drummer, <laughs> female, male, whatever, we had auditioned some guys and I got to see, oh, wow. Okay. So this is like what, uh, you know, people were talking about because uh, up until then, I, I had never ex- really experienced any of that unless I was going into a music store. Then it's like, right. honey, baby, let me sell you this piece of crap. <laughs> you know, whatever. Uh huh. You don't want that Fender Precision. Here's this awesome 
piece of garbage that you should buy instead. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was a different story. But in terms of being in, in bands, I was definitely spoiled. And the, the scene in New York at the time, the guys were all like super queerish anyway. Mm-hmm. Everyone was super open-minded and mm-hmm. Peaches was like a goddess mm-hmm. in the New York scene, whether you were male, female, gay, whatever. I think it was a time when gayness was maybe just starting to get celebrated. Electronic music became wildly popular after 2000. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't see that coming at all. <laughs> what year was it uh, you started doing that? like 98 we got our first computer and like i proceeded to go like sixty thousand dollars in debt buying computer equipment and stuff to be to make an electronic band because i was obsessed with new order and even a lot of the late 90s stuff massive attack i was just blown away blown away the first time i heard tricky max and quay um Portis head, all that yeah. stuff. I was like, okay, okay, this is why I'm in a nine person band because I need to learn how to do <laughs> yeah. programming. I need to learn how to do electronic music because I have so many ideas. But when you're in a nine person band, there's a lot of arguments. You got a all, lot I've never of been people. in a band with more than four people, so I can't even imagine. Oh, it is like it's what everybody says. It's like being in a in, in love relationship with as many people as are in your band. Right. And, you know, a lot of times I think folks don't understand, like even famous rock star musicians, they're people too. And you have these extenuating circumstances in your life. Like I've been houseless as much as I've been homeful in my mm-hmm. life, you know, personally. So it's, it affects your rehearsals. It affects your music. Sometimes, you know, you're expected to like perform your duty at rehearsal, but your life is having such issues that it's, it's holding back everybody else, but really it's that everybody else needs to hold that person up. So there'll be whole rehearsals where we're just sitting there kind of holding each other up, smoking cigarettes, (laughs) you know, just like famine down, like being family and just like Mm -hmm. realizing that like we have to bring, you're only as good as your weakest link. So there's so much psychology involved. In I think that's such a good being message, in a band. though, too, because like when you think about a relationship or when you think about bands as like a relationship, as I, I know I often do, but I feel like a lot of people like they'll think about a healthy relationship in their dating relationship, but not in their band relationship. And so they're in these relations like band relationships with people that are like horrible to them. And oh, yeah. You know I've, what I mean? I've definitely seen that the guy I was with for 10 years was in a band that was like that. I felt like they just like were always like negatively inspiring each other and kind of like playing nasty tricks on each other. And I was like, oh, is this what dude bands are about? I'm really glad I'm in my weird avant-garde art band with my brothers. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, I was just like, this does not feel loveful. And to me, music is love. And so if even if you're playing like death metal, yeah. You love that. <laughs> and your yes. love is coming out through that. Yeah. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's just, it's important, you know? But yeah, that was the first like wow band, I feel like, that where Ghoul took it to another level musically. And I, I always kind of like chase that in my uh, solo stuff that I do as low. Um, yeah. I'm almost trying to make Ghoul by myself <laughs> in a way. Because we're all over the country and, you know. Um, I mean, the, I, 
having not heard gold, but having heard your solo stuff, it's awesome. It's so good. Yeah. It's, it's just like, so the, the production is great. Like the, the choices that you, there's just like really smart choices in different is in the layering. And then obviously like just thoughtful around the composition and structure and just like etchy and interesting. I don't know. Thank yeah. you so much. I, I spend an ungodly amount of time on Ableton Live. <laughs> yeah, I see Ableton as my, I mean, this is unpopular, I think, in the guitar community to admit this, but um, yeah, Ableton's like my instrument mm-hmm. as much as bass is. Uh, ever since it came out, I was really fortunate. There was this, when I was living in New York City, uh, around Electro Clash times, there was this amazing band called Vic Thrill. Uh, the singer was from the Bogmen, and I got to be friends with those guys. They inspired what I was doing a whole lot. Mm-hmm. And Johnny, the bass player, he was the first person I've ever seen using Ableton on stage in mm-hmm. 2001. So immediately after the show, I was like, what are you doing? I need to know what you're doing. Because I was like using Pro Tools and an Mbox, and it crashed like two times in the middle of the mm-hmm. set. It was horrendous. Yeah. And there, no MIDI capability, nothing. So I was really stoked to have been introduced to Ableton Live really early on. And it's been a part of, I consider it like my instrument. And sound design is kind of, I try to marry that with catchy music because I'm an 80s and 90s kid, you know. I love sure. that pop music from that era and songwriting. Yeah. So as much as I love sound design and loops are amazing, there's something about actually writing, you know, mm-hmm. that is very, I love it. So uh, I try to to apply that when I get to make all the decisions with my own music. Right. So, so I guess when you are writing your own, like process-wise, when you're doing that, are, do you start with like, I'm going to write this thing on bass and then like adds loops around it? Do you actually loop your bass first? Like what's the, what is your process of like around I'll that? tell you what, field recordings I start with. Oh. I start with, I love freesound.org. There's like a whole community of people who share their stuff. There, I I find that like field recordings and nature sounds really, really inspire me. I get them into Ableton. I slow them all the way down. I speed them up. I do this and that. I, Ableton has this thing called drum racks where you mm-hmm. can basically take um, different patches of 127 different individual samples. So I actually create my own drum sounds out of nature sounds and out of ambient recordings. Whoa for most of the low stuff because you know in my opinion you just can't create like real sounding instruments so like i don't know i Why think that's not worth my trying yeah, to try I understand what you're saying. I'm, yeah. i'd much rather go to a that's an important thing i like to point out too is like if i'm gonna be recording instruments like guitar bass and drums i'm going to pay someone at a mm-hmm. recording studio who has a two-inch tape machine which yeah. i love and I'm going to like get it recorded properly, and then I'm going to put it into Ableton, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to send it to a mastering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you know, if I'm doing instruments in that way, yeah. so what I do with my solo stuff is much more. I feel like sound design because I I didn't have in our Oakland apartment. I couldn't go through amps, mm-hmm. so I was literally that's kind of how the pedal building started. I was like, mm-hmm. well. I need something that's going to make the sound like it's coming through an amp. So start building preamps and little things like that and realizing, oh, certain things like harmonic percolators kind of, you can just put it into a DI and it really sounds good. You know, it's close. 
and uh, so, you know, it kind of got me down the pedal path, just also being isolated in a city away from my lifelong collaborators. Mm-hmm. So that's, I was like, oh, well, if I'm, you know, I'm 47 years old, I can't be like gigging like crazy anymore, or whatever. How do I stay connected musically yeah. above and beyond making my music? What's something that I can do uh, moving forward, even as a very old lady, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm realizing now the arthritis is, is getting crazy because oh. I, yeah, because I do salvaging, you know, I take mm-hmm. old things and take them apart. Let me tell you something uh, that hurts your hands because some of those yeah. screws are like rusted in there. You know, I got to take a Dremel saw and like get the it's it's a lot of like uh, handwork yeah. involved in that. And so, yeah, it's like your hands hurt a little bit. But aside from that, it's something I feel like people can do well into your senior years. And it's just really rewarding. And it, it's, it's like part of sound design, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I love sound design so much. And then I got involved with, you know, checking out, you know, making little different circuits and stuff and realizing, oh, so this is like just a step further because mm-hmm. I tend to print my effects in if I'm like playing guitar or whatever. And then I add Ableton's effects on top of it or, right. you know, that, or put it through a Roland Space Echo or things like that. You know, I really, it's nice to be able to get a specific thing that you can actually build yourself, craft what you're hearing in your head before it even gets into your tape machine or your DAW or whatever. Yeah. And and I bought so many pedals over the years because I was, I didn't know and I wasn't realizing, okay, well, they're basically like tuned for guitar, right? Mm -hmm. They're guitar pedals. And so that was the major magical mystery that I feel like I was trying to figure out was like, how can they sound like crap on bass? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm a bass player who (laughs) questions it all the time. Yeah. And then yeah. I come to realize like, oh, it's actually like in most cases, a fairly simple thing through tinkering. I realized because I play guitar and bass all the time on my recordings, I really want the pedals to be able to react well to guitar and bass. Yeah. So uh, especially moving forward now with builds, I, I'm adding things like a clean blend to almost everything, everything. I make because for bass, that's like it, I'm finding super important. Yeah, and you can do a, a little switch a lot of the time for like the uh, Crowther Audio Prunes and Custard. Are you familiar with I don't this know that one. weird, weird pedal? Uh, it's like the drummer split ends in New Zealand. I think made them. Got it. Okay, and um, somebody just told me like, oh, you love the, I love the electroharmonics bass microsynth. So this friend of mine was like, you got to check out this PNC thing. And it was the first pedal that I really had noticed had a guitar or bass switch. And I realized Ah. it was just switching out these capacitor and resistor type deals so that if you're playing guitar, the filter is going to catch it properly. Uh, If you're playing bass, it's going to allow more bass tone through. And so uh, that also kind of started me thinking like, well, if this person can do it to this really weird sensitive pedal, I think it can really be done to other things. And so, you know, yeah, that's essentially what I try to do. It's interesting because I feel like I, as, as somebody who also plays bass and guitar both like frequently, I think about that a lot and like what it is like, because without somebody that has the engineering, like the electrical background, I wonder like, the decisions that people make around like is it a is it a clean blend is it uh like a uh parametric eq 
queue or whatever? Is it like, you know, like changing the changing the capacitors or like how, you know, like changing the, the range? I don't know exactly. Like how do people make those decisions, I guess? Well, that's another thing that I feel like with the pedals, it's it's a lot like making music. Every single person has a different ear. Yeah. And has different opinions and things they love and things they don't like. And so when you start doing that, I feel like that's kind of what you're going to do is find your vision or oral vision, I guess. Your, vo um, your voice. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. At least for me, it's completely personally motivated. I started it because I was, you know, doing my own recording and songs and sound design. And just out of necessity, it's like, oh, I finally kind of understand how to build these things. And so now I really love this particular, like a Mutron phaser, but mm -hmm. I don't have $600 or whatever they cost. And so, you know, that was the first real exciting thing when I built my first like Mutron phaser. I was just like, oh, finally, <laughs> <laughs> there's no plug-in on earth like these, you know, and that, I still stand by that. I'm an Ableton diehard and I love all digital and analog forms of, you know, recording, capturing sound. but I still think analog things just pack this sort of oomphy punch and kind of have a creaminess to them that yeah. maybe I'm just old, but I, I love analog sounds. They're just rich. I'm going to take a quick break here to thank some more Rad Midriff sponsors who help support the podcast. First, we have DistroKid. So if you're a musician and you want to get your music out there to more people, but you aren't sure how, and you... Maybe you are on a label and they're not doing a good job or you're not on a label and you, you know, you, you're not really sure what to do. DistroKid or maybe you run your own label and you want to get it out there. So many options. DistroKid can help you. DistroKid puts your music in online stores and on streaming services such as iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many more. You get 100% of the income so they don't take out any fees and it allows you to do like customized splits to different band members or musicians per song via this thing they call Teams. And you get to, you know, I don't know, it just seems like a, such a useful tool to be able to do that. Uh, and if you have like more than one project, you can sign up for that too. It's, I don't know, it just seems like such a useful thing for folks to really like take control of their music in a way that perhaps was a challenge before. You can use the link distrokid.com slash VIP slash midriff to get a 7% discount. And I'll include the link in the show notes as well. I also want to mention my buddies, Adam and Jen up at Stompback Sonic in Boston. Stompback Sonic provides musicians with an extensive tonal palette for auditory exploration, specializing in effects pedals. They offer a curated collection of companies, large and small, some locally crafted, some assembled from around the world. Adam and Jen have been helping musicians and sound-based artists find their sound since 2009. By working collaboratively through one-on-one -on -one consultations, they do more than sell you a pedal. They ignite the creative spark to bring your music to life. So I had told you I would report back. I had a virtual pedal consultation with Adam this week, and I recorded and shared an MP3 of myself playing, and then he played it through a number of pedals for me and turned the knobs so I could sort of like A, B, a few pedals virtually. Then he also, as per my request, but it, it is something that he also does, he did a live demo for me as well. So he also played, you know, played guitar as well so that I could hear it that way. And it was just a really cool and unique experience. And Adam is very kind. He's very knowledgeable. And I am very much looking forward to my new pedal. 
If you're interested in a consultation or just want to see the cool, unique selection that they have, you can check them out on social media or at stompboxonic.com. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Yeah, and that's why the same yeah. three women who were in my band, Addicted <laughs> to Fiction, now, yeah. you know, we decided we're going to just play punk rock. So have you been playing with them the whole time? Like, since, because you've been playing with them since the, the aughts, yes? Yeah. Heather Helskis. I found a MySpace page, so yeah, <laughs> I know yeah. how long you've been around. <laughs> yeah, it was a as long someone time who ago. also has MySpace pages fans from the yeah. From, from I mean, era. I remember. Yeah. I remember Friendster. That's how I found my first friends in LA before I moved out there. Yeah, it. We, me and the girls played together as Addicted to Fiction until about 2006 or so. Yeah. So we came up with the idea of like, well screw it let's just do like we all love x the mm-hmm. you know punk band x let's do something that's like x meets rush <laughs> you know, like, obviously as a trio you, you know i um, i yeah i i just saying that out loud i'm just like that's my favorite thing already <laughs> yeah because i you know i just love to rock i love playing <laughs> punk rock and heather, heather and i played in a lot of bands together. I started playing with her in a punk band called Crowns on 45 in New York. I never played punk. I was in this weird avant-garde art scene, mm-hmm. you know, that was sort of metalish, whatever, and grungy or whatever. And she was very much in this like riot girl, punk rock. And I think we overlapped on Sonic Youth. Because yeah. who doesn't like Sonic Youth? Right. So she she and I shared a bandmate from a previous band. There was a guy in Ghoul who she lived with and we played a show, ended up playing a show together, both bands. He did like a double duty night and she and I both are like really big on stage presence. Uh-huh. We both love to get lost in it and just like, if my guitar breaks, it breaks, I get it fixed, you know, just like really get into it. And so we both recognize that about each other, seeing each other's band play. And she's like, you gotta, we gotta play together, you know? And, uh, so I get together to play with her and I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't play punk rock. I'm used to like doing this really technical, lots of things with effects, whatever. So it was like super challenging. I, you know, had to kind of learn a genre, but then in the process, I completely fell in love with it because mm-hmm. it was so raw. And it's like, uh, it's like being like in a musical church when you're in that, it's like anger, it's violence, it's love, it's, uh, you can't kind of explain that to people who don't get punk rock. It's almost like they have to find it for themselves mm-hmm. in that way. Because uh, previously I did think like, oh, you know, this is so simple and brash. And like, you know, I used to listen to X and be like, she's singing out a key. <laughs> like, you know, uh-huh. like that kind of like. Uh-huh. Um, so it was also a huge lesson in like letting go of music theory and letting go of anything contrived and just sort of. And like letting your anger out, you know, I didn't have the greatest childhood. So for me, it was like really amazing. I think I got out a lot of anger and violence that way. Mm -hmm. I think music is a great way to do that. You know, rather than don't punch the wall, like play some punk rock. (laughs) Like, (laughs) You know, I'll never forget, even when the metal years were happening and I was just really into Metallica and Soundgarden and worship Jane's Addiction because I mm-hmm. think they were gayish and loved that. But uh-huh. then like uh, my metal friend gave me this cassette and it was Nine Inch Nails Pretty Hate Machine. Mm-hmm. 
And I was like, oh, I don't, keyboards suck. I don't like electronic music. Take uh-huh. that back. But then one day, I was just like really feeling like angry. I was like, ah, oh, let me just put this on. And it just made me like angrier and happier. <laughs> and, uh, and I was just like, holy smokes, this is like exactly what I, what I want to be hearing right now and do. And I still to this day think that seeing Nine Inch Nails live is like, many times has like informed my musical journey so much. Yeah. So we haven't really started talking about your actual titles that much yet. (laughs) So I feel like maybe we should talk about that. I know you talk about that pretty extensively on a few other podcasts, which we can reference for folks as well. If you do a search in your pod catcher, I guess is the term people use. You can find uh, Aisha on a number of other podcasts talking about pedals. So, but, but please for context, you should tell people what you do because it's awesome. Yeah, I I build pedals, um, guitar pedals. Um, again, I guess my big motivation was to make sure they work well on bass and guitar, because that was like my original motivation. I really love mostly building analog things and tinker a little bit with digital things, no microcontrollers or computer stuff, because uh, in my mind, I kind of just want to keep that separate because I want to reserve my computer time for actually making music Mm -hmm. on Ableton. So that's sort of a conscious decision I made that I really kind of want to keep this things that I would use myself. Yeah. And I get tons of inquiries because custom pedals are like really what I like to do. Mm -hmm. Work with somebody like, oh, what kind of sound are we looking for? And uh, if it seems like something that is not something I would use, then I probably don't really want to make it. Mm-hmm. And so I'll say, oh, I know a lot of builders. And I, you know, oh, you should check out so-and-so uh, because they, this is right up their alley. And so that's, yeah. I'm the first person to do that. So I'm also not an electrical engineer. I come upon the things that I make by just by sheer, like the hunt for my own ears, you know, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, oh, okay, I see this circuit. Oh, let me get that schematic and let me learn. So I'm still, I'm always learning, always learning, but I think my biggest joy comes from actually building the thing, you know, making sure it sounds like something I would use and it doesn't have a discrepancy that I wouldn't like. You know what I mean? So I'll keep working at it until, okay, now that doesn't bother me. In fact, and then I love it when I make something and it actually makes me like, play new riffs on the guitar while I'm testing it, you know, to me, Mm -hmm. that's super inspiring. And that's the ultimate goal to me. That's also why I don't like labeling the controls on my pedal, because Ah. I really think like, I want you to let go of that in sound design too. Like I teach a few people here and there Ableton and just like recording whatever. And that's the biggest thing I say is like, please don't let the sheer number of tools available to you hinder you from getting your idea out mm-hmm. you know i'll tell them all the time like because the people i've taught they'll play instruments too i'll say you know pick up that acoustic guitar or pick up your drumsticks what do you you know let's see what you're what's coming out of you but a lot of times when a new person sits down to a daw a digital audio workstation it's really overwhelming. There's so yeah. much stuff. And like, in my opinion, 90% of these plugins are just don't sound good to me. Uh-huh. So then you're doing this whole trial and error, like you're loading this plugin. Okay, no, no, no. And then let's not even talk <laughs> about stacking because there could be a plugin oh, that's terrible on its own, but stacked with 
other things actually is useful. Mm -hmm. So it's just like I tried a really same approach with pedals. I think you were saying that with Karen maybe on a previous podcast about like uh, how they have a very simple interface and like I'm super inspired by that, you know. If I put a lot of knobs on something, it's usually going to be like a lo-fi noisemaker for textures and like our FM thingy. But when it comes to, I like to look at like effects as building blocks, which is why I don't really love multi pedals. Mm -hmm. Because when I'm recording, I want to just take that one out. You know what I mean? And replace it with another one. It's almost like like doing research. Like you're not going to, you have certain things that you don't want to mess with multiple variables at the same time because then you don't know what's doing it kind of exactly and other thing is let's say you got your three main effects in one enclosure and one part one of the circuits goes down for whatever reason all three are down so you have most of your pedals it seems like you've got are some you've got a couple variations of fuzz and then you've got a delay Mm -hmm. you've got Mm-hmm. Yeah, the delay yeah. is kind of a, a noise device, just a mishmash of different things yeah. I've built that, They're all you together, know, kind of. yeah. yeah, exactly. And um, I don't do a lot of things like that because it, it's fun. But again, it just takes a whole lot of time to come up with as well. Yeah. And uh, I love fuzz, but, you know, I really, really want to do an overdrive next. So I'm kind of studying on that and just. Cool kind of uh trying out different things but it's also interesting because i really do what the whole thing is i want every pedal to be one of a kind in some way which is why i will never like standardize a batch even i you know we did uh last year two batches of pedals that were all the same and uh we'll do those but it might be like once a year or something because i'm really i really do love doing unique stuff and coming up with, uh, you know, custom ideas for people. The, like I said, I really love the building part of it. I think a lot of people who make pedals are trying to streamline that process. And I get it because it's so darn time consuming, the mm-hmm. sourcing of parts and building part of it. But to me, that's like the love, the love. Like, I love that part. Yeah. In fact, if I had a job at a super big company doing that for the rest of my life i would absolutely do that because Mm -hmm. i enjoy the building i like working with my hands but it's interesting because it's like and i've heard you talk about this in other podcasts too where it's like there's people might be interested in pedals and interested in collecting pedals you were saying that there are just such a small number of cis women in particular involved in pedal building so like what do you, what would you describe as the barriers, do you think, as somebody who's inside that space? I mean, obviously you're, it's different because you obviously were able to get through it, but you've said that you, you're also doing some like um, workshops and stuff with folks around that, around pedal building. So do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, it's interesting I, uh, because I can't always kind of figure out why more cis women or women in general yeah. uh, aren't involved, but at the same time, having been on the forums early on and just had the overall experience in music and film and, and whatnot. I just feel like I can't really tell. I don't have an answer why more women are not getting involved. In fact, the series you're referring to, I was doing some like super beginner videos, which are just like terrifying. Cause I hate being on camera and I only have my like iPhone six, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, this is a capacitor. Hold on. 
let me <laughs> let me get my phone over so you can see it. Um, so I tried, you know, and they were lo-fi and whatever. And I had I was really excited because like forty something women, you know, asked me for the links, uh, which I purposely did not publish on YouTube mm. because I think YouTube is a like becoming a, like a hate speech community and if wow. anything i would have comments disabled because it's not constructive people are yeah. there to learn no thank you anyway so i i released these videos it took a huge amount of time away from building and making music to make the videos as mm. as lo-fi as they were and i just noticed people were not watching them. i think when i kind of drove home in the second video how much of your time and energy is going to be dedicated to not the fun part, which is soldering. Yeah. Not the fun part, which is plugging in and it works great right on the first try, which like never happens when you're a beginner. <laughs> uh -huh. And that really upset me because I like to think that we ladies are like feisty and we're going to fight for it. Like uh, that's my reality anyway. Mm -hmm. And I want, I really think it's like rewarding for folks like me and you and, and other other women out there so it's something that i like would like to try again in fact my brother's a filmmaker and he like shot all my nice video for the pedal movie that's out today which i was so stoked about, about. <laughs> uh, it got released like uh right when the podcast was starting with you so i said oh let me watch 15 minutes of it uh, <laughs> got um, <a> cram <laughs> but anyway my my brother's a filmmaker he He's amazing. And while I was staying out there, we had talked about doing, um, instead of just for women, for uh, children, like of all ages. That was my next question, actually. Because I find yeah. kids are just more willing to do the work when they're obsessed and interested with something. And kids who are obsessed with Legos are going to be obsessed with this, yep. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I don't really care what their gender is because frankly, they might not identify. You don't know. Yeah. Yet anyway. Yeah. And we're not even going to talk about that because I'd like to think that the kids aren't spoiled yet by us adults. And I want, you know, I want them to be around people like me and, and all different kinds of people because I also think that normalizes difference. Yes. I think there's a benefit of women teaching boys as well, 100%. Um, and I, for some reason, that. Boys respond to me like really well. My nephew and I have an amazing rapport in that way. And, I, you know, I play with a lot of boys. Yeah. <laughs> and, and do pedal building in my whole community is guys mm -hmm. mostly. So I just, it, it's more exciting to me to think about teaching kids because they're just really open-minded. And although they sometimes lack focus, sometimes they really don't. And so... Even if it's only two kids are like crazy focused, that is so exciting to me. Yeah. And I'm going to yeah. put a lot of extra energy into that. It's interesting too, because I think about like adult learning generally, because I feel like a lot of folks that pick things up as adults have this intention. And so I've seen this like as people learning instruments as well. So like learning how to build, learning instruments. There are adult responsibilities, I think, that just like, I mean, as a person who learned guitar when I was 14 or whatever, I was like, I'm going to sit home after school every day and watch Oprah and play E minor and G back and forth for three hours. You know, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> like that was because I didn't have lots of other stuff going on. I didn't have responsibilities other than, you know. That's a know. huge point. That's a huge point. Well, I wouldn't say most because we weren't always like this, but... A lot of kids that have at least a little bit enough privilege right. have the ability 
to do that because they don't have responsibilities, you right. know? But uh, right. that and was another- that's uh, not the case for everybody, but Well, like, I mean, this yeah. is something my brother and I discussed when we were talking even about possibly down the line doing something for kids is uh, I wanted to make sure that kids like us who like had to help mom bills and from a very young age um take care of our little brother and things like that still have a space there you know and i think that because of my experience my different you know life experiences in that way they tend to like uh kind of feel comfortable with me so i'm mm-hmm. i try to be really down to earth too i'm really the least bougie person you could imagine. <laughs> I, I'm embarrassed by that kind of stuff. And I think like, you know, with kids, especially who, who have a little bit harder, a lot more responsibilities, it's about like kind of helping them see like, well, this is kind of where I found the time because I had a, I had to babysit my brother. But what I did was like you said, I put Oprah on and I practiced. So right. while my little brother's doing Legos and I'm watching him, I'm practicing all the stuff my guitar teacher says that I'm terrible with practicing. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. like um, uh-huh. you have to find your pockets. But I think like you're saying, for the most part, most kids don't have those responsibilities and therefore they're like an open, uh, like a dry sponge right. ready to be wetted. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. And to think to like, yeah, privilege plays in in so many ways, I think, with regard to just time. And you can see that with kids, but you can also see that with adults. And then like, who it's a privilege to have the time to learn new things just in general. Oh, absolutely. That's know? how I feel. I honestly yeah. feel for me, like I want to learn more electrical engineering stuff. But being that, you know, we're not exactly financially secure most of the time and it's very hard for me to get regular jobs outside of the kitchen where like I, for some reason, like I get great cooking jobs and I love them and I've done a lot of them. It's hard on the body and, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of am tired of managing people, <laughs> that sort of thing. So <laughs> Uh-huh. This is the first time this year that I've actually been able to just build pedals and get by and um, hopefully, you know, we'll keep doing better and better because, you know, even myself, I want to take classes. I never got to go to college, so mm-hmm. it would be really cool to have the time. But, you know, when you come from many generations of no privilege, it just it is what it is. You yeah. know, it's it's hard. That privilege definitely plays into this world, you know, and uh, a lot of these pedal companies that are, you know, friends of mine, I'm like, oh, they're doing so great, this and that. They're able to move so quickly. And meanwhile, like, I don't have a a house, so I'm going to, I'm trying to figure out my living situation and still keep this going. Right. Uh, So it's really hard because you you want to like progress at a certain rate, but you're just not in a financial bracket to do that. And so it's a thing what you're talking about. Totally. And it's like and I think anybody who's been in music has seen that like it happens with within like music, people having the ability like spend time writing or whatever, you know, like that is a thing. And then that same thing with like building a business on the side of whatever else that you're doing, like having the finances to start it. And having no guidance. And just like literally, I I grew up hand to mouth. My mom did, (laughs) you know, it's Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. And it's like, it's awesome. It's, it's, it's awesome that you've been able to 
like teach yourself and get to this point where you are at where you're at and making such like amazingly cool and interesting and unique pieces but <laughs> but like that's it's a, it doesn't make it okay that that you're in the situation that you've had to to feel those challenges to get to that point so, totally. I mean, know. I'll be honest, I'm just like literally can't even believe it. And I'm really happy that this year <laughs> I don't have to wear a mask in the kitchen for 10 hours a day. And uh, let me tell you, really respect the folks who make your food because it was already a hugely challenging thing to do, physically demanding, mentally. What they're going through right now, tip big, guys, if you yeah. can, guys and girls and everybody in between. Yeah, I'm I'm just really grateful to be here right now where I'm not too overwhelmed with business, which yep. would be nice once I have more collaborators, but at the same time it's definitely I'm noticing a lot of people I think don't want to buy a pedal made by a woman and a lot of those people don't realize that a lot of the pedals they do buy are actually built by women. Right. So I think it definitely affects my sales. But like you were also saying, it affects it the other way too, where I kind of like, I really appreciate the support, but I don't want someone to buy it just because I'm female. Oh, because right. I have the first pedal made, but because first of all, I'm not, okay? There's uh, so many women <laughs> for decades who have been building your gear. I just have, I just have the balls to say, here I am. <laughs> you know, I'm a woman, I'm making your pedals. And I accept that bit of, okay, this person's not going to buy this because I said that I'm a woman. Mm -hmm. Because let me tell you, we get all of our, all the fam low family people who support us and buy our things are just like the loveliest people. Like I said, how I was spoiled with my male bandmates. <laughs> I'm really spoiled <laughs> with our customers because I feel like I've had like maybe just a handful of people who weren't amazing, you know? Yeah. And in the end, you know, Fiona's really helped me with this. Like, turn them down. If you get a weird vibe, just turn them down, yes. you know? And I do that a lot now because awesome. it's like, I, you know, if your language is already like not there, I can already tell this is like, you have to do a little more learning before yeah. we can communicate. And I That's used to just pander to them, you know, because I, I want this so bad. Yeah. And it wasn't until I stopped doing that that we actually started selling pedals. It's like, you just have to stick to your guns, mm -hmm. give 150, 200% to each unit, put your little unique spin on every single one. And I put love and intention into all of them. And that's when people are, that's what people are going to notice. It's not, it's not whether you're male or female. And frankly, the the female haters in the community, like, I don't, I really don't want my hard work for any right. amount of money in your hands. <laughs> so that's like, they're not your people. I mean, it's like people tell you you're supposed to like niche down or whatever. Like if you're a business, like being clear about your values so that then you don't have to work with people who are not in line because they will filter themselves out. Um, yes. Because if you're in that weird limbo where you're like, do I want to work with this person? That doesn't feel great either. I don't think. Well, one of the things, reasons why another, one of the reasons I set this up as like only a female company is because I'm, it makes it pretty clear that I'm really only going to collaborate with females, right? Mm -hmm. So I used to get a lot of folks like, let's collaborate and this and that. And while that's cool, that's not my vision for what this is. Mm -hmm. I want to like empower women to come at me 
or I look for them too, trust me. Yeah. <laughs> um, circuit designers, things like that. I finally, I'm really excited because I have a woman coming on to help me who's incredible. <laughs> and finally, we're going to be able to like sell as many pedals as the guys. Uh, hopefully, once we get her involved. Fiona works full-time job and helps me as much as she can, but ultimately it's it's a lot of work. Yeah. And I like physically can't make more than 10 pedals a week. I'll just tell you, I'm slow. I take my time. I want them to be right. Mm-hmm. And so there's just no physical way for me yeah. to do more than that. You know, when you add people, you multiply that by double, right? So right. that's that's what I'm hoping for. And I really hope that any women out there listening, if you're a circuit designer, you're already involved in the understanding of any portion of this, uh, reach out to us, lowsounds at gmail.com, because I want to amplify our output. I think we do things a little bit differently for, I'm not going to say any particular reason. It's just our energy, our essence. And I really want to see like where it could go with more female minds attached and hands. Yeah, I hope I hope that people do reach out to you. And I feel like also like we talked about the pedal movie. I'm curious to see like what I, I, I having not seen it, like I'm glad that you all that you're represented in the movie and like I don't know what that experience was like for you. They reached out to me when they were pretty much already done. Because they wanted some like B-roll and they wanted to do like they did the little uh, featurette. Yeah. That was all the ladies. And then, of course, I saw because YouTube's hatery, all the comments about like this should be in the real movie. And it's like, well, duh, of course, these ladies are in the real movie. This is just a little extra segment situation. Yeah. And so I don't even know like how I fit into that. They um, I have no idea how much or how little were included. We're just thrilled to be included. And I understand that perhaps we are included because we're the only ones that are saying, hey, this is just women doing this here. Mm -hmm. This is two women for now. Whatever. I want that message out there. You know what I mean? And there's no hate there. It's all love. I take it as love. And I have nothing but love for the makers of the film. They've been like really kind yeah i mean they could have um, chosen not to do that (laughs) i mean i'm not gonna spoil the movie but very first scene the lady (laughs) just that's all i'm saying but uh you know come on we buy half the year nowadays it's okay and you know one thing i was pointing out to emily from offset because uh she kindly purchased a pedal Mm-hmm. recently and so i sent her a couple things and i told her i was like you're only the fourth female that i know of who's purchased something from us wow so 99 percent of my customers yeah. are identifying as male folk mm-hmm. and so that's a thing too you know mm-hmm. um you might not be interested necessarily in my output but maybe you'd be interested in um you know heather brown stuff or frantone mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. look into that because there's some women who make some cool stuff and don't just buy the TC electronics. Right. They don't care about you. You know, it's like if you want to if you want to buy a pussy belter, I don't know what kind of <laughs> message that is <laughs> sending out to. I don't know. Maybe a uh-huh. lot of women like don't care about that. But me personally, I would have freaked out if I knew back in the day. Yeah. Uh, and it tickles me to know that like probably the electroharmonics pedals that are like 
my desert island petals that are like going in my coffin with me when I die were probably assembled by women. Because mm-hmm. apparently there were a lot of women building. So to me, that's, I, I want that, you know, like I'm dying for like a tuna tone guitar. You know what I mean? Like totally. there's an energy in there that's like really exciting. So I want to close out by just like saying, if you were talking, if you had like carte blanche to discuss with the industry, like any of your like random buddies, and I'm sure you've had this conversation with folks before, like who, who wanted to know, they're like, what can we do? to make the industry better? How can we make the industry more inclusive? What would you tell them? Put your money where your mouth is. It's just like when you go to the grocery store, every scan informs them of what to order. You know what I'm saying? And that's why I'm saying, try to buy stuff from women who make stuff. Whether it's your barrettes in your hair or your t-shirt or your pedal or, you know, support female makers, Mm -hmm. you know? Because we automatically are not going to be you know, earning at the same level, you know, and we have to change that with our dollars. What would you, what would you tell men who are running other companies about how to change Um, it? Because they're going to, they should buy pedals from other people too, but yes. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Well, it's really tricky because I tend to not associate with any pedal companies who I think have that reputation for totally not being sentient and open and right so i feel like you know pedal companies should really kind of just mirror what like earthquaker is doing at all time because mm-hmm. they're just always right on in my opinion there's never ever a single word that hits me the wrong way in any of their verbiage and um it seems like they try really hard to make sure that not only their workforce is diverse but that they appeal to people who are open-minded and uh so yeah follow that path I feel like I mean yeah they're just like heroes to me it's interesting because I you know I've worked with Earthquaker and I've worked with Julie and I feel like and this they are oftentimes the people who are referenced when when people are like they're doing it right like uh and I think to me the thing that they're doing that other people aren't doing is like they're putting in the time yep they're putting in the time and they're putting in the money and those two are related obviously and And they're and they're showing tons of female identified and gender non-binary folks totally again it's normalizing think about when we were 14 you know and how impressionable you are and you just obsessed with this guitar now and yeah um just just think about you know like how inspiring that can be you know what i mean to see that young or just you know anybody who's just like killing it and of yeah. course earthquaker is always the first company to say hey we got this so-and-so person in a room and look mm-hmm. what they came up with and it's always like something different you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that's what it is too you, like you were saying you could tell they put an insane amount of time into like research and development of not just the circuits themselves or the way the pedals look but like who they want to reach Right. And how they want to reach them. And that's what I was going to say. It seems like they're doing it not because like, oh, we want to include females because they buy 50% of the gear now. No, it's because yeah. it's what's right. It's, it's, what, it's how it should be. Right. And so I really appreciate that. So rather than calling people out for what they're not doing, I think it's <laughs> easier for me to just say, well, this company is something to aspire to in the yeah. way you deal with the world, in my opinion. If we were going to have you 
make sure folks can stay in contact with you and obviously upcoming stuff. Do you have any other upcoming stuff? We have obviously they should go, people should watch the pedal movie and um and then high five you for Ow! Anything else exciting coming up in the in the near term too? Well, right now I'm knee deep in building these uh, FM thingies. Finally mm -hmm. have a waiting list for the first time ever, which wow. I'm working hard on. I'm here all the time, which is great. I love it. But yeah, I'm kind of hoping by the end of the summer to have something to put out. And I apologize that our website is always sold out, but I mean, it's just me really. <laughs> so, and what's cool is like the people aren't just seeing, oh, it's sold out. Like they're finding me and that's kind of what right. I want. I'm yeah. not going to like have Facebook and this and that. I'm only on Instagram because that's the only place that's even relatively nice in my opinion. <laughs> and, uh, and we have a, web, a big cartel website as well. So I honestly always encourage people to reach out on Instagram because it's like the only social media that I do. And I always put my email out there, which is lowsounds at gmail.com. And we're nice. We don't bite. So ask any question, even if you think it sounds crazy, I might think it's like totally amazing, doable. Yeah. And any questions about DIY, any of that kind of stuff. I'm yeah. always, always around. I always, like most of us, I have my iPad and my iPhone. It's like the first episode of Portlandia now for everybody, <laughs> right? Um, so I'm building and I have this up and that up. So it's like, I'm pretty reachable most of the time. And I encourage people to reach out. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, this has been real nice. And I'm excited to talk to you again sometime. Yeah, it's really good to meet. And uh, I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much. And we'll see you soon. Thank you. Oh, geez. I loved hanging with Aisha. What a rad person like we just I, I don't know it was a very fun conversation uh and if you want to see more of her you can watch the pedal movie as per our discussion <laughs> as well and of course you can find her on instagram and i'll have links to all of her uh, and low sounds contact info in the show notes all right let's talk jargon shall we We've all been in musical spaces that use jargon, whether it's like a music store or a discussion board, playing a live show, whatever it might be. And jargon, like by definition, is sort of like a specific terminology used in a particular field or a profession. So, you know, a few examples of that might be uh, for like nonprofits, they'll use terms like capacity building or organizational sustainability. And education will use terms like flipped classroom or ungrading. And psychology will use terms like heuristic or CBT. And if you don't know what those words or acronyms mean, don't worry. That is exactly the point. So let's think of a few examples of jargon in the music gear community. And I'll specify even further to the guitar community, as each sub-community, I think, has sort of like its own specific jargon. So for me, the top ones that came to mind were like true bypass, transparent, dumble, Tonewoods, JFET or MOSFET, Compound Radius, EL34s, DAW, any of those kinds of things. So you can like insert your own like most or least favorite piece of guitar jargon right here. And yes, I am forever going to call that guitargon. I'm never going to stop. You can't stop me. Uh, I also made a call out to Bidriff's Instagram followers uh, in a story. And here are some of the comments that they had made or ideas that they had around jargon in the guitar community in particular. 
they said creamy, point to point, ohms, axe, gas, pups, or, you know, pickups, tubes versus solid state, germanium versus silicone, master and slave. Yes, that is a term that's used, I guess, maybe less so in guitar, but regardless, it's not okay. Anyway, I'll save the gender focused examples for another time for another discussion. But if you're reading this, there is a good chance you've probably heard or, or perhaps even used some of these words before. And in most cases, and I, I'll say I use I use some of them myself. Yeah. In most cases, they're, these are really like descriptive terms, right? They're being used to help someone learn more about a piece of gear. So what it does, what it sounds like, or what components it uses. And, you know, in and of itself, it can be a useful tool. But Jargon serves a couple of different purposes, right? So first of all, it increases efficiency and, you know, maybe in some ways nuance in in-group communication. It signals in-group membership, right? That's another thing that it does. And it demonstrates knowledge and therefore power and position. And it excludes out-group members. And so the problem here is that while jargon can help connect in-group members, it also can signal to outgroup members that a particular space is not for them. So instead of using jargon, I want to think a little bit about how we create spaces where folks are brought in rather than kept out. So let's think about that. So starting from sort of like broad to narrow, I guess, uh, first of all, think about ways that you can create a learning environment. So everyone is learning from someone in your space. That's just what it is, right? So like people who know a lot about one thing might not know a lot about something else. So that might even mean that people who might not know a lot about one particular area, like uh, the specific difference between bubble font and tall font, green Russian big muffs, right? <laughs> that's, that's very specific. But they might not have personal lived experience in another area. So, for example, common problems experienced by BIPOC folks in the workplace and retail and potential solutions to make those spaces better. Like some folks aren't going to have that. They're just not. So another thing to kind of like try and include more folks is to keep a focus away from perfectionism, right? So perfectionism is a tool of white supremacy. It can be a tool of the patriarchy. We don't need to share how much we know or how perfect we are by sharing jargon that keeps people out. We just don't. Another is, you know, not assuming someone's knowledge level, right? So this connects back to the issue of mansplaining, which, you know, just keeps coming up. Uh, and you, you have no idea what someone knows or doesn't know. None of us do, right? So if someone comes into your retail space or up to your booth with questions or even on like a discussion board, you can ask them what they're looking for and what they might want to do with it. You should be doing less talking and probably more listening in this situation, right? Because you don't know. You're not going to know what they know unless they tell you. And you can also share if requested. So this is my fourth recommendation. If someone does ask you a question, that is great. So now you know a bit more about what they know and they trusted you enough to ask your opinion. That's awesome. That's like a really good sign, right? So you can feel free at that point to share relevant info uh, with jargon that matches their knowledge level, which you have already guessed at this point. So there's, you're never going to know for sure. You know, we'll, we'll talk more about that in a second. Five, provide external resources or multiple ways to learn. So someone might be coming to you from a variety of different entry points, right? So whether through your website, social media, at a store or show. So on social media, you could make like a useful, clear explainer video about a topic or point folks to other 
other people who are, who have them or include a glossary or a blog on your website with more information about different topics so folks can kind of like figure out on their own without, you know, having to ask someone if maybe they're not comfortable asking someone in your particular space. And, you know, if you're in person, you could actually post a glossary on a wall with like terms that are important you know, whether it's like if you're in a drum shop or something like that, you could list the specific terms for, for that space. So posting a glossary, you could include simple diagrams explaining common labels on things like pedals or amps or even like how pickup selectors work, for example. Right. So like giving people multiple ways to make themselves comfortable with the information. So if you've done those things that I just mentioned and you've created a warm, trusting, non-judgmental space to ask questions, then much of the concern about jargon is kind of a moot point, right? But unfortunately, many spaces do not feel that way to many folks. So, you know, thinking about ways that you can maybe make it a goal to come up with a plan to make some of the positive changes in your space that I just described, you know, whether it's a workplace, a venue, online space, wherever it might be. All right. So if you enjoy the podcast, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts so more people can learn about it. And you can follow along with Midriff on Instagram or Facebook between episodes. Come hang with me. It will be fun. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>